I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, John chapter 6. And I want to read the verses 22 through to the end of verse 59. John chapter 6. Beginning to read at verse 22. This is the word of God. On the following day, when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no one, just to fix the setting just a little bit, this follows immediately on the heels of Jesus having walked on the water. The disciples had set out and they ran into the storm and then Jesus walked in the water and quieted them. And then on the following day, when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there except the one which his disciples had entered, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. However, other boats came from Tiberias near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. And when the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into boats and came to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. And then they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Therefore they said to him, What sign will you perform then, that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of my Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. The Jews then complained about him, because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said to them, Do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. 
He has seen the Father. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore quarreled, or some translations have it grumbled. The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. And I want to focus with you this morning on verse 44 of this passage. Verse 44, I want to repeat that for just a moment, where Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. May God add his blessing to the hearing, the reading, and the preaching of his word again this morning. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, gathered with me here in Salem and Bowmanville this morning, the chorus of a well-known hymn of the Christian church ends with the words, Whosoever will may come, send the proclamation over vale and hill, whosoever will may come, whosoever will. And that theme is a biblical one. The words are lifted almost literally from Revelation 22:19, where we read, And the Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him that thirst come, and whosoever will, whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. So we can safely say then that the statement, Whosoever will may come, is biblically correct. It is indeed clearly given us in Scripture that whosoever is thirsty may come and drink. Whosoever is hungry may come and eat. Whosoever is in need may come to Christ and ask, and it will be given him. Whosoever desires salvation may come and seek it in Christ, and he shall find it. Whosoever is weary and burdened may come to Jesus for rest. Whosoever will, whosoever will may come. According to the scripture, never will it be possible that on that final day of the Lord that someone will be able to say that he eagerly longed, eagerly hoped, earnestly desired, and eagerly willed with all of his heart to come to Christ but was refused. Indeed, all those who come to Christ will be received by him and will taste of his healing, saving mercy. That biblical truth needs to be emphasized also today. However, although we may indeed pro- proclaim freely that over vale and over hill that whosoever will may come, 
we would be guilty of presenting an incomplete gospel if we failed to add the rest of the scriptural truth which teaches us that no one can come to Christ unless the Father draws him. I want to repeat that. No one can come to Christ unless the Father, Father God, then draws him. Modern day evangelicals have been so influenced by the errors and even heresies of Arminianism, fundamentalism, and dispensationalism that the cardinal truth of God's electing love in Jesus Christ is as a precursor to coming to Christ has but all but been lost. According to our scripture, no one can come to Christ unless the Father draws them. And yet, and yet, praise be to God, we regularly see people coming to him. We regularly see people coming to faith. In fact, in fact, regularly, even in this church, we see especially young people coming forward to and wanting to profess their faith in Christ before the congregation. And then we also see, the, see them being welcomed into the church as full communicant members. We see also men, women, sometimes whole families coming forward wanting to join with God's people as a consequence of evangelization. What, what I mean is that we read that no one can come to Christ and yet we see them coming all the time. How do we explain that? Well, the simple answer is that we confess that they come to Christ, they have come to Christ but they have done so not by making a decision to join the church or choosing to become Christian, but they came because it pleased God to draw them unto himself through Christ. In other words, in other words, when that happens, when these people take up their rightful place among the assembly of the elect, when we welcome them, when we have a confession of faith service, for instance, when we welcome them as church members, we come forward and we shake their hands. Perhaps we even hug some of them who are special to us. And we wish them God's blessing upon their spiritual journey. But we do not congratulate them for their decision. We do not praise them for coming to Christ. No, we shake their hands we th and then we thank and we praise God for the decision that God made for them. It's an important distinction. However, although God needs to draw men and women unto himself before they can come to him, that's not to say that man is totally passive or that man is simply a robot, as, or as our confessions or in our canons of Dort puts it, men are not simply stocks and blocks. No, God is sovereign in matters of salvation. But at the same time, man has an obligation towards sanctification. It's like the two parts of the covenant. God makes promises, but he holds before us our obligations. And so I want to minister God's word to you this morning using as my theme, coming to Christ, coming to Christ. And we're going to see, first of all, what is implied in coming to Christ. Then we want to learn how it is made possible to come to Christ. And finally, we want to consider from our text the benefits of coming to Christ. So coming to Christ, what is implied, how it's made possible, and the benefits of coming to Christ. Congregation, it's one of the surest facts of Christianity when the doctrines of man's 
natural spiritual condition and the necessity of God's grace in Christ is preached, there will be instant resentment and rejection by many who hear them. The sinful nature of man resents being confronted with the fact that he is not the captain of his own soul nor the master of his own fate. Rejection and opposition in response to the preaching of the true gospel has always been the natural reaction of the natural man. And so we ought not to be surprised then to find that Jesus' teaching and preaching in this chapter of John was also immediately followed by an outbreak of resentment and protest by the leaders of Israel. We read that when Jesus told them, I am the bread which came down from heaven, we read that the Jews began to grumble. And we see there in our text, we see numbers of people who had come to Christ. In fact, throughout all of the New Testament, we read that there were masses of people who came to him. They came to hear him preach. They came to listen to his teaching. And they came to witness his amazing miracles. And yet, and yet, and yet, not all truly came For we read, they began to grumble among themselves. You see, the Jews of our text, they flocked to Jesus. They came to Jesus, but they had no ear for the gospel. No, they had witnessed Christ's miraculous feeding of the 5,000. And they they saw in him qualities that would make him an able leader in their time of oppression, Roman oppression. And they sought to make him their earthly, earthly king. In other words, they were motivated by concerns of a commercial or an earthly consideration. And therefore, we read, when Jesus held up before them that the only way to God was through him, they grumbled. They found him to be a stumbling block an offense and they left him people got gird up the loins of your minds with me and follow closely what we learn from the words of our text this morning is that it is indeed true that many people will come to Jesus but it is equally true that not all people truly come to Jesus Many people, for instance, even believe it advantageous to have Jesus Christ, but they want him for all the wrong reasons. I personally saw that repeatedly in the response of the inmates in my prison ministry. While serving a church in British Columbia, we had in our village two large federal prisons, and I had opportunity to establish Bible studies classes in both of these institutions, and I was surprised and initially greatly encouraged by the numbers of men who regularly attended, enthusiastically, I thought. However, in time, to my great disappointment, I discovered that most of these inmates really were cons. What I meant to say, they knew exactly what it is they thought we wanted to hear. And they wanted Jesus Christ, not in their hearts, but on their resume. Because they believed that would be conducive for their early release on parole if they could say that they had come and found Jesus while they were in prison. And so their motives were wrong, and that's, that's the spirit we see evidenced by the Jews of our text. And that kind of coming, that kind of coming to Jesus has nothing in common with a true coming to Jesus. And so what must become very clear to us this morning, therefore, is that it is of the utmost importance that we have a correct understanding of precisely what is implied in that true coming to Christ. You see, the Bible tells us that not all Israel is Israel. 
Not all in Israel who claimed to have Abraham as father also had God as father. In other words, not all people who considered themselves to be children of the promise really were children of the promise. And the same is still true today. Still today, many people who call themselves Christian in reality are not Christian Christian at all. Still today, it is indeed true that not even all people whose names are recorded on the membership rolls of the Christian church truly belong to the church of Christ. In fact, Jesus himself warns us about the tares among the wheat. He speaks of hypocrites within the fold, and the very nature of a hypocrite is one who appears to be genuine when in fact he has counterfeit, he is fake. And the tares of whom Jesus spoke, they are, e- they are easily distinguished from the wheat, and they are removed from fellowship by, by ecclesiastical discipline. But in the case of hypocrites, that's a little more difficult, in that hypocrites appear to be genuine. They go through all the motions and they participate fully and regularly in the life of the church, but their hearts are not with the Lord. So indeed, not all of those who outwardly would appear to belong to Christ have genuinely, truly come to Christ. You see, the drawing power of God, the drawing power of the Father is not necessary for someone to simply maintain a formal relationship to the church. You see, you see, you can belong to a church, even a good church, even a faithful and a true church. You can belong to a faithful, true church and yet not belong to Christ. As we see here in our text, it is indeed possible for people who externally evidence a Christian commitment, but in reality, internally, they do not really know him. And so it is crucial for us today that we clearly understand what true coming implies, because you see, if, if, if the making of a public profession of faith is nothing more than formally joining the church, then a great sin has been committed. Follow this with me. The men of our text had indeed come to Christ, but they had come because he had multiplied the loaves. They marveled and they stood in amazement at his wonderful abilities. They aped and they gaped, if you will, and they were impressed by his miraculous power and they sought his help for their cause. But but, but, but they did not seek him because they had been convinced that he was the Christ. To them, he was not the son of God. Whatever else they may have thought about him, that idea had not entered their minds. In fact, when he finally identified himself as such, they accused him of blasphemy and ultimately crucified him. Oh, they would receive him as king of the nation to deliver deliver them from Roman oppression, perhaps. But Lord and master of their hearts, their lives, and their souls, oh no, that was completely unacceptable to them. Understand this well. These men were not prepared to deny themselves or to take his yoke upon themselves. The men of our text were not willing to forsake all and to trust him alone and to follow his leading in love and obedience regardless of the cost. That was not the condition of their hearts. They had not understood Christ's call nor were they able to do so as they were men and women who were still in their natural or their unregenerate state. A supernatural act was still required to illumine their hearts and minds. 
according to the scriptures, a further work of God would be necessary before they could hear and see the Son of God in all of his glory. Does not the Bible teach us that it must be so? In 1 Corinthians 2, we read the natural, meaning then the unregenerate, the non-Christian man receives not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Neither can he know them, for they are spiritually discerned. Inasmuch as he is a natural man, it is not, says the scriptures, it is not within his power to discern the things of God. It is not within his power to understand the things of God, end quote. My dear precious people of God, all through our Bible, we see only two kinds of people. We see those who meet the Christ, embrace him on their own way, in their own way for the wrong motives, and then grumble when Christ lays his claims upon their life and their living, and then they ultimately leave him and walk with him no more. And we see men and women who came not because they had heard that he was able to feed them with bread that 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 never that with the, with uh, to, able to feed with bread that doesn't perish, but rather they had become convinced by the grace of God that that the that only only the Christ of God could offer the bread of life, and that's what they were after. Listen to the testimony of some of those whose hearts have been made receptive to the calling of Christ. Matthew chapter 16, we read of Jesus questioning Peter. We hear Christ asking him, Peter, Peter, who do men say that I am? And Peter, first of all, reveals to Christ public opinion about him. Some say one thing, others say something else. Some hold him to be a prophet or some other great leader. But the general public does not hold him to be the Christ. And then Jesus presses him a little further, but Peter, who do you say that I am? And then we hear that beautiful confession of Peter's faith. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Read also a little further in the same chapter of which we, in which we find our text of this morning, John chapter 6, in verses 68 and 69. We read that in response to Jesus' teaching, Many disciples rejected him and no longer followed him. And at a certain point, Jesus turns to the twelve and he asks of them, Will you not also leave me? And listen carefully once again to Peter's confession, this time in two parts. First of all, he once again confesses Christ to be the Holy One of God. And then he goes on to acknowledge that Jesus and Jesus alone can obtain the necessary salvation for man. Peter responds to Jesus' question with words, Lord, Lord, to whom will we go? To whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. And congregation, still today, multitudes come to hear and to see Jesus. Some stay, some leave. And those who stay, those who by God's grace have truly come to Christ are marked by these same two characteristics as evidenced here by Peter. First, they will recognize Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. And secondly, they will see their own need of redemption and they acknowledge that it can be found only in the Christ of God who has the words of eternal life. But, my dear people of God, if it is incumbent for us upon us to come to Christ, and it is, and if it is crucial that we truly come in the right way, 
And that is also true. The question then becomes, how is it possible for us to come to Christ? And the answer is given us in our text. It is not possible to come to Christ at all. Jesus says, no one can come to me unless, unless, unless the Father draws him. Notice that our Savior calls it an impossibility coming to Christ, though declared by many people in contemporary Christianity as being the easiest thing in the world, claimed by many to require a simple decision to choose for Christ on the part of the sinner is here in our text declared to be an, an utterly and an impossible thing. Congregation, the Bible wants us to know that men and women, men and women, hear me well, cannot come. Men and women cannot choose to become Christian. Away with that foolish, unbiblical notion of altar calls. Men and women cannot choose. They lack the power. They have neither the inclination or even the ability to do so. Unless, 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 unless the Father draws them. Unless God divinely intervenes without his prior divine intervention and intercession. It is impossible for men and women to return to God through Jesus Christ. And unless God... God exercises his sovereign choice and influence. It is impossible for man to inherit eternal life. My dear precious saints of God, think carefully with me. You know the story. You've heard it so many times. Man, as he came from the hand of God, that is, as he was in the beginning, as he was created, he was good and reflected the very image of God. However, that one act of sinful disobedience in paradise by the first Adam had the most devastating consequences, not only for Adam, but for all of mankind. As the old McGuffey reader used to say, in Adam's fall we sinned all. And throughout all of scripture we are taught that as a result of the fall in paradise, man is what? Man is dead, spiritually dead, in sin and trespass. Listen to Lord's Day 3 of the Heidelberg Catechism as it explains it so clearly and so beautifully. It explains what the Bible teaches about the condition of man and his ability to choose for Christ. After it is explained to us there, taken from Scripture, that God created man good and in his image, that is, that God created man in true righteousness and holiness, then the question comes, then where does man's corrupt nature come from? And then the answer from scripture, from the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve in paradise, this fall has so poisoned our nature that we are born sinners corrupt from conception on. The next question, but are we so corrupt that we are totally unable to do any good and inclined to all evil? Yes, 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 unless, unless we are regenerated, unless we are born again by the Spirit of God. Congregation, that's what the Scripture teaches us about our natural inclination. Every single man and woman in the world comes into this world dead in sin and trespass. Dead men and women cannot respond to the gospel call. 
Dead men and women cannot move spiritually. Dead men and women cannot hear Christ's call. Dead men and women cannot choose to make themselves alive. Dead men and women cannot choose to make themselves Christian spiritually. Dead men and women cannot come to Christ unless they are born a second time by the Spirit of God. By nature, we are inclined to hate God and our neighbor. What comes naturally to us is that we have neither the ability to hear Christ uh, nor the desire to come to him. Our nature has become a, a sinful nature, so poisoned, so corrupted by sin, that as a result, it has become an utter impossibility for us to turn ourselves to God or to even prepare ourselves to meet him. According to the scripture, no one can come to Christ unless the Father draws him. That's what we read. No one can come to Christ unless the Father draws him. However, and equally important, the opposite is also true. It is also impossible not to come to Christ if the Father draws. The Father's work must come first. His drawing must precede man's coming. A certain power or influence must be exerted upon man by God. And the consequence of that supernatural act is that man is now miraculously and for the first time enabled to hear the sweet voice of Jesus as he says, Come, come unto me. And he is at the first time, at the same time, empowered to come to Christ. My dear precious people of God, when one is born of water and the Spirit, then not only does he now come, but his heart in fact leaps for joy within his bosom in the knowledge and the conviction that he or she personally has been drawn to Christ through the love of the Father. And this drawing of men is affected by a spiritual force which only the, only the Father can perform only God has the power to enter into the innermost recesses of the hearts of men. Only God is able to work in such a way that all resistance is taken away. Only God can change a man's heart, his mind, and his will. That is the drawing which is needed for coming to Christ. Where previously sin had reigned, where there was once resistance and opposition, now by the operation of the Holy Spirit and by the grace of God, there is acceptance and in fact a great desire. It is now a pleasant thing and a great delight to come to Christ and to be one with him. The Spirit of God opens the eyes of man's understanding so that he can behold the Christ of God in all of his glory and at the same time enables him to see his own sinful need. My dear people of God, there is no human power which can stop the rising of the morning sun. Just as a man is helpless and powerless before the powers of uh, huge hurricanes and tornadoes and tsunamis, in the same way, there is no power which can prevent those drawn by the Father from coming to Christ. Nothing can hinder or prevent that operation of God in the hearts of his elect. Does Jesus not teach us that it would be so? Do we not hear the words of our Lord in our text? All those given by the Father will come. 
In other words, all that stands between a chosen sinner and a gracious Savior, God will overcome. All those given me will come. If there be hardness of heart, whether there be blindness or deafness or spiritual death, all of that will be swept away by the power of God because all those given to Christ will come. If there are thousands of miles between one of God's elect and the bearer of God's gospel message, God will get that message out because all that are given me will come, says Jesus. And those that come experience indescribable blessedness. That too is given us in the text. Jesus speaks of a complete salvation, salvation of body and soul, perfect salvation through him. Oh, oh, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. What a, what, a, what a foretaste of glory, divine heir of salvation, purchased of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. People got to listen to what Jesus is promising us here at death, even at the death of a Christian. The body descends into the grave. We stand around that graveside and we see that. We see that body being lowered into the ground and we experience the pain of the parting. The soul ascends to heaven. This we believe from the scriptures. However, the graveside of a loved one, it would seem to the human eye that death has the victory over one of Christ's own one of God's children would seem to be under the power of the enemy. Death, not Christ, would seem to be the victor. But, but, but here Christ assures us that in reality, that's not so. For I will raise him up on the last day. He himself has won, has won the victory over death and the grave. That body shall not remain in the power of death and the grave the body of a child of God will not lie forgotten in the grave. No, no, no. Here Christ teaches us that salvation is of the entire man, body and soul. In fact, in the very opening salvo of our confession of faith, Lord's Day 1, we confess jubilantly to believe that in body and soul I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Body and soul belong together and both shall be fully redeemed. Ultimate and complete victory in Christ is promised us here in our text. Consider now again for just a moment the contrast between those who come to Christ and those who do not. The one is promised and assured that he will be received by Christ and on that last great day his body and his soul will be reunited, reunited to enter into mansions of glory. The other receives his just reward a second death and an eternity in utter destruction and darkness. People God, the words of another well-known hymn of the Christian church tell us that Jesus calls us o'er the tumult. Jesus still calls today over the tumult, over the mayhem, over the confusion, the uncertain noises of a sin-darkened, fallen humanity. The call of the gospel goes out into all the world. All men, women, and children everywhere are commanded to hear and to respond to that call. 
All men and women and young adults, teenagers, and even our children are commanded to repent and to believe in him who has the words of life. And yet we know from the scriptures and we know and we learn from our own life's experience that some men respond, some do not. Some men change. They joyfully believe the covenant promise and begin to honor their covenant obligations. Some hear the sweet voice of Jesus, embrace his gospel promise in faith and obedience, and begin to order their lives accordingly. Others, having heard the same message, do not believe. Some harden their hearts and reject the Christ and commit their lives to the world and its empty pleasures and promises. What now is the reason that some respond and some do not. It can only be one of two things. Either there is something different in the people to whom the call comes, or there is something different in the God who sends the call. In other words, in other words, either there is something better or stronger about those men and women who choose for Christ, or there is something different within the God who has already chosen. And here in our text, Jesus teaches us that the difference is not to be found in us. For in and of ourselves, we were dead in sin and trespass. Left on our own, we would not. We could not come to Christ in order that we might have salvation. But praise be to God, who by the power of his Holy Spirit accompanies that gospel message and effectually changes the hearts of men and drives them to their knees at the foot of the cross of Golgotha. And that power is not to be found in ourselves. Oh, no, that could not be. For, for as the hymn writer expresses it so poignantly and so succinctly, and we're going to sing of that in just a few minutes when he writes, quoting scripture, "'Tis not that I did choose thee, for, Lord, that could not be. This heart, my heart, your heart, would still refuse him had he not chosen me." No, no one can come to the Father, come to Christ, unless the Father draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. The fact that we see people confessing their faith cannot be credited to them. All the glory, all the praise has to go to God and to God alone. Soli Deo Gloria. My dear people of God, when you have learned to know him, when you have been taught by the Spirit of God to say, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, and when you have believed that he is the Holy One of Israel who has the words of life, then you can only sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. For you have come to him, not because of your choosing, but only because you have been chosen and drawn by the Father and given to Christ. In other words, if you know yourself to be a child of God, it can only be because the Father has drawn you in Christ. 
Inasmuch as you have come to Christ, God has drawn you. And inasmuch as he has drawn you, it is proof that he has loved you with an everlasting love from before the foundations of the world. The decision to draw you and to save you was made by God before the world's foundations were even laid. He wrote your name on the palm of his hands only because of his love for you and that love of the Father shown to you is an everlasting love. Oh, let your heart then leap within you because you are one of his. Your own name was already written on his hands when they were pierced with the nails on the cross of Golgotha. God says to you, and God says to me, and God says to all true Christians everywhere, Rejoice in the Lord and shout for joy, for you have been drawn by the Father, and you have been brought into the secret place of safety in the bosom of Jesus Christ. You have been chosen, Jesus Christ, and you shall be kept in his love by the power of God throughout all of this life. And finally, you will be raised up with him on that last day to stand in his presence and to praise his name for all eternity. So then, how do men and women and even children, how do they come to Christ? They don't. They don't come to Christ. They were brought to Christ by God. May it be so for each of us.